Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, verse 1, as we continue our series of messages on sharing our faith and investing in the lost. Today's message is indeed entitled, Who's Your One? Who's Your One? As John mentioned at the beginning, we've encouraged all of you to grab a card like this. If you don't have one, we can get you one. Because last week I told you I was going to challenge you today to identify one person in your life, one lost person uh, in this community, in the Mansfield area, who doesn't know Christ. Doesn't know Christ. Someone this year, God would lay on your heart to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with. So last week we talked about a method for doing that. We talked about the three circles and how you can show somebody the good news of the gospel. This is the day, though, where we're really going to be challenging you to identify who is that person in your life that God's going to lay on your heart. So I want to tell you how the service is going to end at the beginning of this message. At the end of this service, we're going to be challenging you to bring these cards. If you'll notice, they, they're, they're perforated. You can tear it off. We're going to challenge you to bring these cards to this altar as an act of obedience to the Lord. For some of us, it may be very uh, uncomfortable. Maybe it's uh, stepping out of our comfort zone, stepping out in faith, trusting the Lord that, that we're going to put a name down. We don't really know how this is going to happen or the way that God's going to open the door. But we're just going to say, Lord, this is the person I believe I'm called to share with. But we want you to be ready at the end of the service to write a name down. Maybe somebody's going to, maybe God's going to lay somebody on your heart in the middle of the service towards the end of the message Whatever that is, we want you to be ready to identify who that person is in your life that God's going to lead you to share with. Luke 15 this morning is going to really show us why that's important. So if you've turned there, please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Luke 15, starting in verse 1, we read these words. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Let's pray together. Father, we pray as we are gathered around your word this morning that you would speak to us. God, that you would remove distraction. That, Lord, you would illumine our minds, not just to see the word on a page, but to grasp the weight and the meaning and the significance of what you're saying to us. God, I pray that as you speak to us today, we would not just be hearers, but that we would be doers of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. 
I've told you guys before about my beautiful four-year-old daughter, uh, Paige Allison Plumley, and uh, we've reached a point in my relationship with her where she now loves to show me what she's wearing for the day. So I'm very quick to tell her how pretty she looks, how wonderful she looks, and all those types of things. And so now, whenever she puts a certain shirt on or skirt on or whatever, she always wants to come downstairs and, I've got to show Daddy what I'm wearing. Well, the other day, uh, she had found these two little plastic earrings, these kind of fake-looking earrings, the toy earrings. And uh, with my wife's help, she had clipped these things on her ears. And she came downstairs, and she did one of those model moves, like where the hair's blowing in the wind, you know? She flipped her hair back, and she said, look at these. And uh, it was really, really cute. And I got down, of course, on my knee and I said, oh my goodness, those are so beautiful. You look so great. And we just had this fantastic time. Really, really sweet time in the Plumlee household with my little girl. But I would tell you this, if I took those plastic earrings and subjected them to a test for precious metal, like with heat, those things ain't going to make it, Okay. They're not designed to make it. They're not designed to stand the test of time. They're plastic. They're meant to be a child's plaything they play with for a while and they move on to other things. I mention that because Luke 15 provides a test for our motives in sharing the gospel. Luke 15 And this very famous parable Jesus shares provides a really clear test. In the same way that you would test the integrity of a metal, it provides a test that really reveals the integrity or the sustainability of our desire to share the gospel with others. You see, what this text is going to show us is there's a reason why you shouldn't share the gospel, and there's a reason why you should share the gospel. This passage is going to show us that there's a motivation that's kind of like those plastic earrings. It lasts for a little while, but it really doesn't sustain you in the long haul to share Jesus with people that don't know Christ. But this passage also reveals the kind of motive that will sustainably encourage you and me to regularly share our faith with the lost and dying world. One of the reasons this is really important for me as your pastor is because when I do a three-week little mini-series on evangelism, what I don't want the takeaway to be is guilt. (laughs) I don't want to guilt you into sharing your faith. Because you know how long guilt will last? Maybe a couple days? Maybe if I'm lucky, I can guilt you into sharing your faith for a couple weeks. But the only kind of motive that's really going to propel you and I to share our faith regularly with people that don't know Christ, is a biblical motivation. A real heart that's been shaped and molded by what God says. So I want to show you two things from the text this morning. I want to show you why you shouldn't share the gospel, and I want to show you why you should. First, why shouldn't you share the gospel? Why shouldn't you share the gospel? Look at verses 1 and 2 and catch the scene that's in front of us here. It says, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, this is a common scene in Jesus' ministry. Very frequently, Jesus is teaching, crowds are coming. And whenever the crowds show up, we often find that there are different types of people in these crowds. 
In the passage that we just read, the two types of people listed are sinners, tax collectors, otherwise known as irreligious pariahs of society, and the religious, the scribes, the Pharisees, the respectable parties. Now, what we have to notice as we read this a moment ago is, what are these two groups doing? Well, on the one hand, the irreligious, the pariahs of society, the sinners, the tax collectors, they're coming to actually listen to Jesus. But did you notice what the religious people are doing? You may have missed it. Look back on your Bibles at verse 2. Pharisees and scribes were complaining. You know, I found some people have the spiritual gift of complaining. They're complaining. And look at their complaint. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, we we should pause here and and just go ahead and say it. Some of Jesus' most harsh condemnations and corrections were towards religious people. If you read the New Testament, Jesus is oftentimes hardest on these scribes and Pharisees. But we need to clarify something about why Jesus is hard on them. Jesus isn't hard on the scribes and Pharisees because they're religious. He's not hard on them because they're devoted or disciplined in their reading of the Bible. He's hard on them because they're wrong about the Bible. So sometimes I hear people say, well, if you're a really devoted person and really hardcore about your faith. Well, you're like one of those Pharisees. Well, that's not really what Jesus is saying. He's not going to condemn them for being devoted. He's going to be condemning them for being wrong. See, because what they were saying is simply this. They were saying, well, Jesus, for all the miracles that he's performed and all the great things that he's done, he's soft on sin. He doesn't care about righteousness. He doesn't care about holiness. Why else would he welcome these sinners. And did you notice in the text, it says even he eats with them. That's a cultural code for if you eat with a person, you are warmly embracing and accepting all that they are. And so these scribes and Pharisees were saying, well, Jesus, he doesn't really care about sin. He doesn't care about real righteousness. Otherwise he wouldn't hang out with these sinful, broken, messed up people. See, the problem was for these Pharisees and scribes, is they thought the law could save you. They thought that if you followed the Ten Commandments, if you followed the food laws, if you followed the ceremonial requirements in the law, like the way they were supposed to eat and certain ceremonies they were supposed to keep, that if you did enough things, you could be righteous in your standing before God. But here's the principle, and if you're taking notes, write this down. The law doesn't save us, The law exposes us, okay? The law doesn't save you, but the law does expose you. So what do I mean by expose? What the law shows us is that we do not measure up to God's standard. A few years ago, we were at a theme park with our two kids, And I'd done the research and discovered that this particular ride that we were in line for was the best ride in this entire theme park. And we were were pumped. We were excited. And out of the corner of my eyes, I'm waiting in line with my two boys. I see this dreaded ruler. Parents, you know what I'm talking about? It's the ruler that determines by the lawyers and the insurance people whether your kid is tall enough to get on that ride. 
So Seth walked over there, and sure enough, he was, he was the right height. But Noah put his back to the ruler, and he was about three or four inches too short. Really bummer. So Seth and I rode the ride, and Shelly took Noah and did something else. <laughs> That's the kind of dad I am. So um, we, <laughs> we, we figured a way out to negotiate that. Noah got something better on the back end. You know, parents, how you have to do that, that math with your kids. But I think that ruler is illustrative of what the law does for us. Because in the same way that that ruler, established by insurance people and lawyers, shows how tall you are, tall you have to be to get on this ride, the law is something all of us stand up against and shows us whether we meet God's standards. So if we've ever lied, if we've ever stolen... If we've ever held into lust or hatred or pride in our hearts, what the law shows is that we don't measure up. We're exposed as having a problem. So what the Pharisees misunderstood is they, they were looking at Jesus and saying, well, Jesus, why, why are you even hanging out with these guys? They're not meeting the law. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know. No one does. The law doesn't save us. It exposes us. See, what was happening in this passage is there was a cultural misunderstanding of who Jesus is and who he was trying to communicate he was when it came to grace and mercy. And while I think there are people today that still probably struggle with this, you always find people that will say, well, you know, if I'm just a good enough person, God will let me into heaven. No, no one's righteous. No one's good. The law shows that all of us are fallen and need Jesus. I think a different way we probably struggle with this kind of issue of our culture misunderstanding Jesus is thinking that Jesus has just come to give me a better life. I think one of the more dangerous challenges we face in America, especially in the suburbiaville that is Mansfield, is thinking that Jesus is here to give me a better life. I want you to write this principle down. I'm going to give it to you. Please understand, Jesus does not come just to give you a better life. Jesus has come to give you a new life. And there's a big difference. Let me say that again. Jesus did not come to give you a better life. Jesus has come to give you a new life. I understand what we mean by better. I understand that many times when we hear better, we're trying to help people understand that if they know Jesus, it's going to fulfill them. They're going to have joy and peace and happiness and all of these things. But, but the reality is what really gets more caught than taught in the American ear and mind is, well, Jesus is going to help me have a better life. He's going to help me make better grades. He's going to help my kids do better in school and have better friends. He's going to help my marriage and me be happier with my spouse. He's going to help my finances And my 401k, he's going to do all of these things for me. The problem with the Jesus is better mentality is it makes the results of the gospel the focus of the gospel. It's true that Jesus does bring fulfillment. He does bring joy and peace and purpose to my life. But that's a result of the gospel. That's not the focus of the gospel. See, because what you and I need is not just a better life. We don't need Jesus just to improve our lives. We need Jesus to give us a brand new state of existence. We need a new identity. 
We need to be forgiven and redeemed because what the law shows is I can't work my way up to God. God has to do that for me through Jesus. We don't need Jesus to give us a better life. We need Jesus to give us a new life. Let me illustrate it this way. This past week, there was an article in the, uh, a paper in Florida where a journalist with a legal background was arguing that plants and rivers and trees should have legal rights. Legal rights for creation. And this is, of course, uh, argued that uh, there's value in these things and they should have legal representation in court. And before you think that's crazy, you know that there are uh, seminaries that are teaching this. There are Christian uh, universities and schools that are propping this up. In fact, several months ago, there was a seminary up in New York that had a chapel service where they confessed their sin to a tree. And they had the tree there and asked people to confess their sins to trees as well. We see people like PETA and other organizations marching for animal rights, even to the exclusion of life that's unborn. It's almost like animal life and creation has become more important than human life in our culture. And before we too quickly dismiss this, we do need to really think biblically and carefully about why people are saying this. The reason our culture is going nuts about stuff like this is because they've, they've bought into the assumption that the only difference between humans and the animal world or the creation world is one of degree. We're just a higher evolved form of animal. And so because of that, monkeys and trees and all the rest are our cousins. They're our relations. This is an unbiblical, secular view of humanity. Because what the Bible teaches is that the difference between me and the dog in my house is not one in terms of degree. I'm not just a higher form of dog or monkey or ape. It's that I'm a different type of being altogether. I'm a different type of creature altogether. Why? Because we have the image of God. We bear God's image. We have a soul that will last forever. And because we have this image within us, humans are different altogether in a class and category all by themselves apart from animals and creation. Now, don't send me a nasty email. I'm not saying that we should be cruel to animals. I'm not saying that animal cruelty is in any way justified, but please remember, humans are different than animals. I know it's kind of sad that we have to say that in church these days, but this is where we are as a culture. Now, here's the point I want to make to you. In the same way that we don't believe we're different than animals in terms of degree, but in terms of type, we don't need Jesus to just improve our life by degree. We need him to put us in a different category altogether. It's a different type of existence that we need Jesus to usher us into. Here's the point. If you are trying to share the gospel with lost people, because you think Jesus is going to make their life better, you will not sustainably share the gospel. If all you're trying to do is to tell somebody about Jesus so that he improves their marriage, he improves their finances, he improves their parenting, he improves different parts of their job, if all you're trying to do is help them improve and that Jesus is just another self-help guru going to help them do that, you have earrings, plastic earrings for a motivation. Right. 
Because here's what the other side of this I want you to understand, especially in our affluence in America. Can I tell you why that gospel doesn't work? It's because there's a lot of people that have a good life. <laughs> I'm not looking to do it. I got it all. I don't need anything to be better. It's great. I got a house. I got 2.5 kids in an SUV. I've got this 401k that's doing great right now. Why do I need Jesus? If all he's here to do is to make people's lives better, most people in America don't need him. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has not come to give you a better life. He's come to give you a new life because you are hopelessly lost. Because none of us meet the righteous requirements of the law. Why shouldn't you share the gospel? Because Jesus didn't come to give you a better life. He came to give you a new life. Jesus follows this up, though, with why we should share the gospel. This is the second point I want you to see in this text. Why should you share the gospel? Jesus responds, as he often does, with a story. Here is a parable. A parable is a story Jesus tells to make a point. Okay, and this is the story he tells. Look in your Bibles at verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together saying to them, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. Jesus tells a story that would have been very relatable to the people that were listening to him. He talks about a shepherd and sheep. And I've told you before that shepherds were viewed with a kind of skepticism and they weren't trusted as a class and as a group of people, but they were nevertheless an essential part of this New Testament economy and world that they lived in. They were reliant upon sheep. And so this would have been a, a kind of situation that his listeners would have been very, very familiar with. The shepherd has a large flock, 100 sheep, and the story Jesus describes is that one of these sheep is found missing. Now, to you and me, as I'm reading this as an American, I'm like, well, you still got 99. That's pretty good, man. Just What's just one missing? That's 99 sheep. It's so great. But what Jesus reveals is that in the New Testament mind, sheep were so valuable, and there was such an urgency to protect your investment that that shepherd leaves the 99, probably with other shepherds who are with him, not unattended, but he leaves them with urgency to find the sheep. Why? It's because historically what we know, what we observe is that sheep are pretty dumb animals. It's very telling that God often describes his people like sheep, okay? We can be offended by that or we can realize that what this story reveals is that unless the shepherd goes, unless he searches for this sheep, there's no hope that sheep's going to find its way back. It's hopelessly lost. And so beautiful language, Jesus says, the shepherd looked, did you hear what he said? Until he finds it. You know, I think like, well, after 20 minutes, I'd kind of give up. <laughs> no, this, this shepherd could search for days until he finds the sheep because he knows it's hopelessly lost. It's probably similar to the urgency some of us feel when we've lost temporarily lost one of our children. Anybody would admit to the fact that they've temporarily lost a kid at some point in their lives? 
We were at the Memphis Zoo. I got clearance to share this story with Shelly before I'm sharing it. So uh, we were at the Memphis Zoo with my family over Christmas, and my daughter likes to run, okay? And she had run ahead of us with my brother and his wife and their son, my, my nephew. And there was about a 10-second period where she had run far enough ahead around a corner where Shelly and I did not know where she was. And that 10-second period of time, I think we tore up the entire Memphis Zoo apart looking for my daughter. And I can assure you, moms and dads, if you've ever been there, you know that 10 seconds doesn't feel like 10 seconds. It feels like 10 hours, right? Because I couldn't find my pagey. Couldn't find her anywhere. All I had to do was walk around the corner where she was. If you've ever felt that kind of urgency, the kind of urgency that you would feel when you can't find a child is very similar to the kind of urgency that's described here. The shepherd's frantically, urgently looking for this sheep. He's not going to stop until he finds it. In the same way that Shelley and I would not have stopped until we found Paige, Allison, Plumley. The shepherd's not going to rest until he finds this sheep. Very beautifully, Jesus describes that when the shepherd finds the sheep, he puts it on his shoulders, carries it back, gathers his friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice because I found it. But what you and I need to see is that this story about a sheep and a shepherd parallels a spiritual principle. Look at it with me in verse 7. He says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who, underline this word, repents, than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Jesus says, in the same way that the shepherd and his friends rejoiced, In finding this lost sheep, heaven, heaven rejoices over one sinner who what? Repents. Now the the word that unlocks this entire passage is the word repent. Because if you understand what repentance is, you understand why Jesus can welcome sinners, can eat with them, but not be soft on sin. What does repentance mean? Repentance at a basic level means to do a 180 or an about face. It means to turn from one thing to another. But at a spiritual level, repentance means I'm turning from sin. I'm turning from serving and worshiping myself to Christ. Repentance then is the act. It's the willful act of turning away from what's destroying and killing me and turning to the life-giving forgiveness of Jesus Christ. When I was sharing the three circles last week with you, and we talked about moving from brokenness to the gospel, I said that the only way you can move is by repenting of your sin and trusting Jesus Christ. Now, repentance and faith, I don't think are two separate actions, but they are two very distinct realities that happen when somebody becomes a believer. Because the only way you become to Christ... The only way you can truly know Jesus is if you're really staring your problem in the face. If you're acknowledging, as we said a moment ago, that you and I don't measure up to God's standard of perfection. So Jesus here says, there's joy in heaven, not just for one sinner who comes home, not just for one sinner being found. He says there's more joy in heaven for one sinner who repents. 
This has a very, very important connection to how we view the church. See, the, the church is not a place for perfect people. Amen? It's not a place for people that have it all together, that never make mistakes, that never have any problems in their lives. It's not what the church is. But it's equally true that the church is not a place for people that are casual about their sin. Church is not a place for people who think sin is no big deal. And I sin all the time and God forgives me and it's really no big deal. That's not what the church is either. Church is not a place for perfect people, but it is a place for repentant people. People that say, yes, I shouldn't have said that to my wife. Yes, I shouldn't have had that prideful thought, but I'm repenting as a believer from those things and coming back to Christ day after day after day of my life. Repentance, Jesus says, is important because he distinguishes the sinner. Did you see the text? Instead of the 99 righteous people who don't need repentance, to be clear, Jesus isn't saying that there are people out there that don't need the grace of God. Remember the audience, he's talking to in part Pharisees and scribes. He's saying, there may be some of you who think you don't need repentance, but every person does. Every one of us without exception need the repentance and mercy and grace Jesus Christ has to offer us. Repentance, then is you and I staring our sin square in the eye and turning from it back to Jesus. You know, World War II, one of the more popular figures was a guy named General Patton. And Patton was instrumental in the American forces conquering much of Western Europe. And one of the places that Patton was instrumental in not just conquering, but in kind of maintaining afterwards was a place called Buchenwald. Buchenwald was a place where they had an actual concentration camp, but it sat outside of the city. And as the American forces moved through Europe and found these places, they were incredibly horrified, not just at what they had seen with their eyes and the atrocities that were committed in these concentration camps, but by the fact that around them, there were normal, active cities where people were just kind of going on with their lives like nothing had happened. So General Patton did something very interesting at Buchenwald. After the American forces had conquered that part of Europe, he took every citizen from Buchenwald, and forced them to tour the concentration camp. It was a five-mile hike outside the city. They provided no kind of apparatus or protection from the typhus and disease that was rampant through this concentration camp. And it took two whole days to get this entire city, almost 2,000 people, to go through this concentration camp. Now, why do you think Patton did that? Why did General Patton force the citizens of Buchenwald to walk through a concentration camp where hundreds of thousands of people had been killed? You might think, well, he was just showing them who was in charge. He was asserting his authority over them and making them march around, showing them who was boss. Could be. Patton was known for his bravado and for flair of personality. But I think probably the more compelling reason he did that is he wanted them to come face to face with the evil that they had allowed to happen right under their noses. See, because they had to know. 
They had to be aware that the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people that showed up at this place, never to be seen again, had to have been killed. And so Patton was connecting the dots for them. He was showing them what evil had really taken place right around them. The reason I mention that is because I think that's a beautiful and tragic simultaneously picture of repentance. Repentance is in your life and my life, marching up the five mile hill of our hearts and looking right at our sin in the eyes. It's seeing that my lying, my stealing, my harsh words are more than just little mistakes I make. They're a holy affront to the living God And because I've done those things, I deserve his wrath and justice. Real repentance is staring the evil of your heart and my heart right in the face so we can turn from it and run back to Jesus. What I think this passage then means for you and for me is this. Because God cares about the repentance of sinners, so must you. Because God cares about one, just one sinner who repents. You and I need a heart that cares about those people too. We need a heart that cares about that neighbor who you've had casual conversations with for years, but you've never worked up the courage to cross the line into spiritual conversation. That you've never crossed that line to explain why every Sunday morning you pull out of your driveway and come to be with your church family. We need people in our body who are caring about that that coworker you've known for years and years and years, and you've talked about football You've talked about politics. You've talked about the workroom for years, but you've never crossed the line to talk about Jesus. We need to care about those family members who, though it's awkward sometimes to talk about the two big no-nos, politics and religion, we get to cross the line and open our mouths and care about them enough to know that we can open our mouths knowing that God cares about them too. God cares about one sinner who repents. Do you care about them? Do you care about them? You see, the motivation that's going to keep us moving when it comes to sharing our gospel, the kind of motive that will move you to regularly share the gospel with people is getting your heart to line up with God's heart. Because God cares about them, you and I must. Who's your one? Who's that person in your life that God is leading you to share the gospel with this year? Maybe it is a coworker. Maybe it is a friend. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's one of your children. But who is God leading you to share the gospel with this year? Back in October... I began to pray about this. I knew we were looking at this emphasis and 
I was at a state convention meeting of our churches out in Odessa. And the pastor that was preaching was challenging us to think about who our one was. I knew that I was going to be challenging you. And I've just covenanted in my heart that I'm never going to challenge you guys to do something that I and our staff are not willing to do as well. Um, and so back in October, I, I started praying, Lord, who, who's the one person you want me really to pray about and focus on as we move up to this to share the gospel with? I do try to share the gospel every opportunity I get, but, but this is about really focusing your mind and heart on somebody that you can really pray for and be held accountable for to step out in faith. And so God uh, brought a guy named Johnny to my mind and my heart. He's sitting right over here on the third row, asked permission to share this before I did, and his family had been attending our church, uh, but Johnny kind of been on the fringe. And uh, we'd become friends, talked a little bit, but we hadn't really gone anywhere in our relationship. And so when I got back, I shut him a tech and said, hey, let's go have lunch. You have to understand, though, that when the pastor asks you to go to lunch, it's kind of like the principal calling you into his office, okay? And so it was a little touch and go in our lunch at Rose's. We had a great time. We were talking and uh, got to share a little bit about Christ and just trying to feel out where he was at. And through the course of the conversation, just really never felt like I'd kind of landed the plane. But as I continued to pray, and as the months went by, uh, Johnny found himself in kind of a crisis situation. And I reached out to him, and we began to talk. And I, I pulled the napkin out at Chick-fil-A over here on Broad, and I drew those three circles that I drew for you last week. And I showed him uh, how we were designed for God's glory and his purpose, and but brokenness through sin into the world, but we can be saved if we know the gospel. And I asked him, I said, where are you at in this circle? And initially he pointed at the gospel, and I said, great, tell me, tell me when you think you crossed the line of faith. Tell me when you really think you turned from your sin and trusted Christ. And it was in that moment that I saw the Holy Spirit really descend on Johnny's life because he goes, actually, I can't. And then he said this, and I'll never forget it. He said, I guess I'm still in this brokenness circle. He said, yeah, man, I think that's where you're at. I said, Johnny, is there any reason right now why you wouldn't want to move from brokenness to the forgiveness of the gospel? He said, no, I don't think there's any reason in the world why I wouldn't want that. So we left Chick-fil-A. We sat in the front of my car and I led him and he prayed to receive Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. Yeah, we can celebrate that. We should. And uh, when I finished praying, he had these big tears coming down his cheeks. I said, man, you all right? He said, yeah, I really want to blow my nose, but I don't want to blow it on this napkin where you drew the three circles. <laughs> I, said, I said, man, I got you covered. And I popped the glove box and I, I handed him that napkin. And I mean, we just had a good cry together and I prayed for him. And we're going to get to baptize him in a couple of weeks. And just thrilled to see what God's doing in his life. Who's that person in your life? Can I tell you that there are people all over this community that need someone to care about them? Someone to risk offending. Someone who would be willing to step out of their comfort zone and say, hey, you know, I just want, can I just share something with you that's been really helpful for me in my life in the struggles I faced? Doesn't mean all of us are going to get to see Johnny's and our lives saved. But I can promise you this. God has someone in your life right now that he's calling you to share the gospel with. Who is that person? I want you to take just a few moments, just 30 seconds. 
I know we don't like silence. We freak out when it's silent in the room. But I want you to take 30 seconds after we've prayed about this and talked about this. And I want you just to spend a moment. I'm going to ask Kyle to go ahead and come forward at this time. You're already there. Look at that. And identify who, who is that person. Just take a moment right where you're at and write that person's name down. Again, that could be a, a coworker, 